The following resource is from Christ Community Church. For more information, please visit lovinglord.org. Good morning. I know we say it every year, but it's such a joy to sing Christmas hymns. Um, Maybe I enjoy it too much. It brings me back to when I was a child not being raised in the church. Hearing these hymns, though, there was even something in the lyrics back then that pulled on my heartstrings, so they're they're very special to me. Um, If you would, take your eyes up to verse 57. I want to introduce the sermon by actually reading some of the verses prior to that, going up to verse 57. I want to I want to set the stage for you. I tell stories to my grandchildren just as I used to to my great-grandchildren, and I'd always start off, I still do, I start off by saying a long time ago in a land far, far away. Um, and this is very much true. It's a true story. And so let's, let's set the stage at verse 57, um, and then we'll, I'll introduce to you the, the main points. So a long time ago in a land far, far away, The time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. Of course, that's John the Baptist. Verse 58. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her. Remember, she was old and barren, and therefore it was his mercy that brought forth John. And they rejoiced with her, exactly as the angel Gabriel said they would. Verse 59. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child in accordance with Leviticus 12 verse 3. And they would have called him Zechariah for his father, after his father, verse 60, but this, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And that's exactly what Gabriel told Zechariah in the temple nine months prior. Verse 61, and they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, Zechariah, inquiring what he wanted him, John, to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet. Remember, he's, he's a deaf mute. He cannot speak and he cannot hear. That was God's discipline on him. He asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John, and they all wondered. They were all in a state of awe. And immediately his, Zechariah's mouth, was opened and his tongue loosened, and he spoke, blessing God. That's the passage we're going to look at today. Now listen to the response of the people, because this is what I want our response to be today as we hear Zechariah's prophetic word. Verse 65, and fear, that would be awe, that would be wonder, that would be amazement. Fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. Everybody was hearing about the movement of God upon John and his supernatural birth. Verse 66, and all who heard them, listen, laid them up in their hearts. They considered them deeply saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. So all the events surrounding Gabriel's visitation, Zechariah's status as a deaf mute, the the, um, ordination of his office, of his name, and now Zechariah's prophecy, the people knew that something was up. They knew that God was moving. They said his hand, God's hand is upon this particular family and this particular child. But they wondered, what what would his ministry be? I mean, 60 years later, as, as Luke is writing this testimony, his readers knew. They knew John the Baptist. They knew what his ministry was. But at the time that, that Luke is telling the story here, they did not know. They didn't know what God had planned for John the Baptist. That is 
until Zechariah spoke prophetically, revealing not only what his son was going to do, but more importantly, the incredible news that every faithful Jew at that time was waiting for, and that was the announcement that the Messiah, the Savior, had come. That was their answered prayer, that in Mary's womb, the child awaits. Let's pray right now. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would take this true story, and just as you did in the hills of Judea, Amongst your faithful Jews so long ago, I pray you would do the same today. Cause us to respond in awe and wonder. Enable us to hear Zechariah's prophetic word directly from your Holy Spirit. That we might know this Christmas season that Christ child came to save us from our enemies. To equip us to serve you faithfully and to show us the way home that we might have a path and we might have the light to make it into your presence for all eternity. I pray, Lord, you would bless my brothers and sisters this morning with that awe and wonder. Stir our hearts, Father. Let this not be a time of religion or routine. Let us not be sleepy. Let us not be distracted. I pray instead, Lord, you would, by your Spirit, move in a mighty way as only you can and that you would stir in each of us a deep desire to not only hear Zechariah's words and believe them, but to live in accordance with them. You can do that, and we're thankful you can do that. So use this prophet of old to stir our hearts anew today, I pray, in Christ's holy name. Amen. Amen. All right, so this morning we're going to jump back into... Luke's teaching on the Christmas story, on all the circumstances and events surrounding the coming of Jesus Christ. And we're going to be looking specifically at Zechariah's prophecy. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he speaks prophetically. And I want to look at that today, not only to understand um, better why Christ came. Actually, Zechariah tells us, he gives us three big reasons why he came. But I really, as you heard from my prayer, I want us to hear it with great, great expectation, that, that just as God was moving in the hill countries of Judea 2,000 years ago, God is still moving right now. He's moving in this church. He's moving in our hearts. And so let's listen to Zechariah and take all those t- eternal truths and bring them into our present moment and be rightly encouraged and excited by them too. Excited so that we will live in accordance with the truth. Amen? All right. Um, so a couple things I want to look at today, this expectation of God, the title of the sermon is, is Rebuilt by Christ. In other words, we, we think of redemption in terms of God buying us back out of the darkness and bringing us into his family, but I want us to think of God, Christ's work in terms of rebuilding our broken lives and, and how he does that through sending his son, that 2,000 years ago he began this great rebuilding pro- process. And I'd like to look at it this morning by looking at Zechariah's prophecy and seeing three things. Number one, how Christ came to save us from our enemies. And you do have enemies. If you don't know that, then this may be a shock for you. Number two, that Christ came to equip us to serve God. That we might actually serve him faithfully in love. And number three, to show us the way home. The theme of the sermon is this, enslaved, helpless, and lost. That's us. Enslaved, helpless, and lost. Christ came to rebuild our broken lives. Enslaved, helpless, and lost, 
Christ came to rebuild our broken lives. Now, you fall into one of three categories, my beloved. You either know you're broken and you're leaning upon Christ to rebuild you. You know you're broken and you have no hope of being rebuilt because you haven't turned to Christ. Or you don't know you're broken and you're stumbling through life trying to fix yourself. Only in Christ can our lives be rebuilt from the mess that we've made and from the sin and darkness that envelops this current existence. So I pray that, I pray that you're in that category of knowing you need to be rebuilt and that Christ is the one that can do that. Point number one, Christ came to save us from our enemies. So, like John the Baptist leaping in Elizabeth's womb when Mary approached, and just like Elizabeth when she was filled by the Spirit, and she spoke last week of how blessed Mary was, Zechariah is not going to be left out of the family business. He's going to make sure that he gets a chance to prophesy too, not by choice, the Holy Spirit comes upon him, and he will be in that last list, those, that final grouping of the Old Testament prophets. Look at verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, John, Zechariah says, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn. The horn is a metaphor for strength or for power or for might. Raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And of course, he's speaking of Christ, right? We know that. Faithful Jews at that time, they were waiting for their Messiah. Those who truly believed the scriptures, which testified to the Christ coming, and not just coming, but coming from the bloodline of King David. And he would come as a descendant of David in order to do what? To establish the glory of Israel, to bring back the glory days when Israel was a kingdom and had extensive power and majesty. You see, ever since the Babylonian captivity in 586 B.C., Jews were waiting. They were waiting for God to fulfill his promise and move. Because ever since 586 in their captivity, they had been essentially under foreign power. First by the Babylonians, and then by the Persians, and then, I mean, by the Greeks, and then the Romans. And so they really knew no time of of solidarity or freedom to worship God as a people for over 500 years. So Zechariah, he's blessing God in his song, and he's praising God because the time had come. The promises were going to be fulfilled. Look at verse 68 again. The Lord God of Israel has visited and redeemed, past tense, his people. He said, well, in his time he hadn't yet, but, but he had because the three-month-old Christ was growing in Mary's womb. And Zechariah is testifying to that by the power of the Holy Spirit. This Christ child would come and, in fact, redeem his people to enable his people to worship God freely. And in this great redemption, Zechariah, through the Holy Spirit, actually talks about three great things, three key components that Jesus was going to bring to sinful man. He talks about he's going to save us, he's going to equip us, and he's going to show us the way home. And the first thing that Zechariah sits on and praises God for is salvation. Look at verse 69. He said, God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. That's Christ coming from the line of David. As he, verse 70, God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old. So this was testified to for centuries. That we, now Zechariah speaking of the people of God, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. 
So this theme that permeates the Old Testament, going all the way back to the covenant promise made with Abraham, was that God was going to set his people free once again to worship him in spirit and in truth. The psalmist in Psalm 105 put it succinctly. Listen. The psalmist writes, He is the Lord our God. He remembers his covenant forever. The covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as an everlasting covenant, saying this, To you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. Not an occupied land where they were subject to both internal and external enemies, but a place, the promise that God had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was a place, an opportunity for God's people to worship God freely, to not be subject to enemies of any kind. And for 500 years, the people waited for this. They waited for the Messiah to come to set them free that they might worship God freely as God's people. And so the hearing of this cultivated great joy in the hill country of Judea. Now, we know from the New Testament that the work of Christ was not to come and overthrow the Roman Empire. That's certainly, at least in part, what Zechariah is thinking. And the people were thinking that this Christ child was going to set them free from the oppression of Rome. Because of their rejection of the Christ child, Jesus prophesied during his own life that he wasn't going to set them free from the power of Rome. Rome was actually going to destroy Jerusalem and the temple itself for their rejection of him. This is what Jesus said in Mark 13. As Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. In other words, he was teaching that in the future, not too distant future, about 40 years, 70 AD, Rome was going to destroy them completely. In other words, Zechariah's prophecy was, was not a prophecy to overthrow Rome or, or Babylon or Greece or any other enemy like that. The prophecy was to overthrow a greater enemy, a greater problem that the people God's people had. The Messiah in, in Mary's womb came, as you know, to destroy, we just had a chance to sing it, to destroy the power and the work of the devil, of Satan. Namely, his power over sin and death, which is a problem for mankind because we are sinners and we don't want to die. So the Holy Spirit is revealing through, through Zechariah that this Messiah, this Christ child growing in Mary's womb, he would come and he would overcome God's enemies, but not the enemies that we think. He would overcome our greater enemy of Satan, sin, and death itself. Now, we know on this side of the cross, we have knowledge that Zechariah did not have. We know that when Jesus died on that cross for us, we know he dethroned Satan. We know he overcame the consequences of sin for all who repent and believe. And we know, we know that Jesus destroyed the power of death if you're in Christ. So we know these things. Zechariah did not, we do. We know that the promise was not a promise of physical land in the context of a small country in the Middle East. I know that's, that's captured the attention of many Christians today, especially in light of the war taking place. I would say there's a much bigger message that is being conveyed through the word of God and even here in, in Luke's account. We believe that Christ came to overcome 
Satan's sin and death so that when he comes again in glory, he will what? He will throw Satan and his, de- and his demons, in fact, all enemies into the lake of fire, and he will establish not a little slice of land in the Middle East. He will take the entire earth and he will give it to the church. In other words, all of planet earth will become the place where God's people, the redeemed, worship him. How? Freely. No more enemies against God. No more enemies against God's church in the, in the age to come. But the great news is, and what Zechariah is testifying to, and that's the reason he used past tense, he has redeemed, is that that messianic age started with Christ coming the first time. In other words, you don't have to wait for this great day of complete freedom from your enemies, the power of Satan, sin, and death. You don't have to wait for it for Christ to come. You can have it and enjoy it right now. This Christmas season, you can know these great blessings. For all who repent and believe, if you are in Christ, then you know your greatest enemy, Satan, has no power over you. You know that if Christ beat Satan on the cross and you are in Christ, Satan has no power over you. You say, well, well he, he can tempt me. Of course he can tempt you, but he cannot make you sin. He, and, he, and when he tempts you, he knows a few amazing things, probably better than we do. He knows that you've been born again. He knows you've been given a new heart. He knows the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that spoke through John the Baptist in Elizabeth's womb, Elizabeth and Zechariah himself, the same Holy Spirit dwells in you. He knows you have new desires. He knows that he really can't get you. He may cause you to stumble, he may cause you to fall, but he cannot get your soul because you've been bought by the blood of Christ. He knows this. Satan knows, my beloved, that the grave no longer has any power over you. He knows that Jesus, when he died, he took the eternal damnation, eternal death for us. So there's no eternal judgment. And even for us now, I know that when I talk to Christians, I still hear this great fear of physical death. Now, now I understand fear of how you die. I, I think that's a legitimate concern, right? There are some ways of dying that are, are less painful, less, less difficult. But death for the Christian, my beloved, and the Bible testifies to this over and over again, Paul specifically in 1 Corinthians 15, death for the Christian is a blessing. It's a blessing. You get to leave these bodies, and if you live old enough, your body's gonna be broken. You're gonna be saying to God, get rid of that one. I don't want that at all anymore. You get to leave this place and go into the presence of the Lord and experience the fullness of joy and wait for what? For him to come and restore all things and give you a new body. So death has no power over you if you've been saved in Christ. Sin has no power over you. The daily decisions that used to be influenced by sin no longer for you if you are in Christ. Now, I don't believe that Zechariah understood the extent of what we understand now on this side of the cross. I don't believe he did. But I do believe that many of those that were reading this account about 60 years later did understand it, and, and, and we should understand it too. The radical implications of being set free from our enemies, namely Satan, sin, and death today. In 1988, at the age of 21, Jason Hernandez was sentenced to life in prison without parole plus 320 years. I don't know how that works, but you gotta serve life, and then I guess after you die, you get another 320 years. That, I guess that works in the Catholic system. Life without parole, 320 years for 
drug-related offenses while he was a teenager. This was at a time in our country when we were trying to crack down on drug use and distribution. So he spent years working through the appellate courts, finding no relief, and, and after 17 years, he finally wrote a letter to President, then President Obama asking for a pardon. He said, you know, essentially, I was really stupid as a teenager, um, and he was asking for mercy and forgiveness. In his letter, it's profound. He's asking, he says, literally, will you forgive me? Have mercy on me, President Obama. President Obama, in 2015, after 18 years behind bars for this young man, granted his request and commuted his sentence. So Jason went from living a life sentence plus 350 years one day to walking out of his prison cell the next. Now, what's interesting, but it probably did not shock you, is that he didn't beg the guards to stay. As they were setting him free, he didn't say, no, please let me stay here longer in this beautiful prison that I love so much. He didn't ask to stay in prison, and he didn't return to his old criminal ways. Jason, instead, he committed his life to helping those who were in a similar situation, particularly young people struggling with drug and alcohol addiction. In the years since he's been released, he has received multiple fellowships, justice fellowships. He started an organization called Get Clemency Now, particularly for young people convicted of harsh sentences for drug crimes, and he was awarded the Volunteer of the Year in his city for the work he was doing with students in the public schools. So why am I telling you this? After Jason was commuted of his sentence, he lived a completely different life. He got out of jail, he was granted mercy, he committed the crime, he was granted mercy, and he lived a completely different life. I would argue that what Zechariah is saying to us, that in Christ, because your eternal sentence has been commuted through the blood of Jesus, that the eternal sentence that you owe as a result of your sin no longer binds you, that your life should be radically different too. That you should live a different life as a result of Christ, what? Overcoming your enemy of Satan, sin, and death. You, my beloved, the sentence has been commuted. You've been pardoned. You've been set free. So the question for you is, does your life reflect the mercy and forgiveness of God in how you live today? If you claim Christ, you've been pardoned, you've been set free, that jail cell was open, you walked out freely, Satan, sin, death have no power over you. Does your life reflect that? Do you live as the free man or free woman in Christ that you are? Now don't dismiss this question. I know it's rhetorical, I'm not expecting you to answer out loud, but answer it in your heart. Are you no longer succumbing to Satan's temptation? Are you no longer enslaved to your fleshly desires? Are you no longer afraid of death because death has no power over you? Yes or no? Are you living? Are you living for Christ? You say, well, what does that mean? Are, are, you, are you living according to his teachings? Do you submit to his commands? Do you love and do you serve? Do you desire to bring him glory in all that you do? I don't think there's a greater litmus test for the Christian than our love and service toward one another. If you say you love God, then you show that love toward brothers and sisters. You show that love toward the lost. Let me ask you this. 
if someone were to write an article about you after you came to a saving grace in Jesus Christ, would it sound like Jason's life? When they were writing about you, would they talk about the old you and the new you, the before Christ and the after Christ? Would they be able to testify that how you are now living your life differently as a free man or a free woman by submitting yourself and serving Christ in all that you do? Again, is that a yes or a no? If it's a maybe or you're not sure, that's probably not good, right? That distinction should be clear for us. According to Zechariah's prophecy, Christ came not only to set us free from our enemies, but our second point is to equip us to serve God. In fact, I would say that's the primary reason was to set us free that we might worship and serve God. Point number two, I pray you're still with me, Christ came to equip us to serve our Heavenly Father. So God the Father sends Christ, the horn of David, the power of David, to save us from our enemies. Look at verse 72. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. Remember, to Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob, he said, listen, I'm going to set you free. Uh, My covenant with you is that you will be a free people able to worship and serve me. But it did not just include mercy from their enemies. It included the ability, the power, the equipping to actually serve God. Look at verse 74, just before the end of 73 and 74. The purpose of our being set free to grant us, verse 74, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him, God, without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Now that, that's the ESV. That's a little clunky. Let me read to you. The, the NIV, I think, is a little easier to hear. This is what the NIV says, verse 74 and 75. The purpose of our being set free, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. In other words, a totally transformed life. Christ came, set you free from your enemies, that your life now and forever will be one in service to him. In other words, Zechariah is taking some very strong parallels here. In fact, even the language is paralleled to, to Joshua's. Remember, remember Joshua at Shechem? They had taken the promised land, so they're in the land, and for the first time now, instead of wandering throughout the desert and engaging in battles, they're in the land, they subdue their enemies, and now the people of God can do what? They can actually worship God freely. So this was the initial fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The land is now free, they could worship God freely. Joshua gathers the people, and this is what he says. It's a very famous passage. You know this well. He said, now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Why? Because your enemies have been destroyed. You now can. You can serve God in sincerity and faithfulness. And then he says this, put away the false gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river, beyond the Jordan, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now dwell. But as for me, the great phrase that Joshua says, as for me and my house, we will what? We will serve the Lord. Joshua's saying, listen, we are free now for our enemies, and therefore we can serve the Lord. And that is your purpose too, my beloved. 
If you're in Christ, you've been set free from the power of Satan, sin, and death. Not just to be free and walk around aimlessly, and certainly not for you to return to your prison cell or to live in fear, or what we do today in the West is just self-indulge. Right? We're set free from the power of sin over us, and we go right back to the sin, and we indulge it as professing Christians. We've been saved from our enemies that we might live in accordance with the teachings and commands of God, that you actually might live a holy, righteous life. And I would argue, my beloved, there's no, there's no greater motivation for the Christian to do this than knowing what Christ did in order to set us free that in order for you to actually be a free man or a free woman, not subject to the power of Satan, sin, and death, that Christ had to do the great work on the cross for you. And out of that great love for him, you'll want to know and follow and obey God. Zechariah tells us that, that we're set free to do this in two particular ways. One, without fear, and two, with our whole lives. Did you notice that? The first thing he says is we're supposed to serve God Without fear, look at verse 74. We, we now, he's talking about the people of God, redeemed by Christ, being delivered from the hand of our enemies. We might serve him without fear. Now, if you are pursuing Christ right now, you might be thinking, that's not possible. I, I'm, I, I, I'm a Christian, but I'm a, I'm a fearful Christian. You're, you're kind of like Piglet, right? You know, you, oh, it's talking like this, because you're afraid. You know Christ, but you're afraid. The picture that Zechariah is painting here of the church is very different. It's not a church full of piglets. It's a church that's boldly and courageously following Christ, submitting to Christ, and proclaiming Christ from the heart. In other words, my beloved, this Lack of fear is what Christ, his, he came to set us free that we might serve God without it. And that makes sense, right? If you're in Christ, then what do you have to fear? You don't have to fear judgment by God because Christ bore that for you. No judgment from God. You don't have to fear not holding perfectly to the law of God. You've been set free from the curse of the law. Christ fulfilled that for you. You can walk freely in him. You don't have to fear man or the repercussions of worshiping God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You know, you think, if I do, they will think strangely of me. They will talk poorly of me. They may fire me. They may no longer be my friend or my family member if I follow Christ like this. There's no fear, my beloved, for the believer because we know, we know that if we've been united to Christ, there's nothing that can separate us from Christ. You know this, Romans 8, that neither death nor life, so here's, the, here's the, the parameters by which fear is stricken from your record. Neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, amen. What do you have to fear if that's true? I mean, really? Fear that you might lose your job? Fear that you might not get that grade. Fear that your lifelong friend who hates Christ and now that you love Christ may leave you. Maybe. Maybe he will. Maybe she will. But if you are guaranteed never ever to lose the love of God because of Christ, well then you can be that fearless Christian. 
not by your own strength and power, but because of who you are in Christ, something you can never lose. There was a gentleman by the name of Tom Yoder. He worked for the Peace Corps for years, and he was assigned to this small tribal village in Africa, and he earned this nickname, the Great Fearless One. The Great Fearless One. Here's how he got it. He's working in the village. They're trying to establish some educational systems, some agricultural systems, getting them food and and water. And one day, a young boy came up to Tom's hut, and he pointed to the very end of the village to this particular family in this hut, and he said this, the boy said to him, the family that lives in that hut has fallen ill. They've been abandoned to die, but the children are my friends. Can you help? Because no one would go near this family. So Tom, he rushed to the forbidden hut. He entered, and immediately he saw that the family had contracted yellow fever, and they were dying. They were dying. So for the next six days, Tom bathed them, he fed them, he nursed their family for six days to get them strong enough to get them to a hospital, which was 90 miles and away, to have better care. Well, he successfully nursed them back to the place where they could get to the hospital, and then each family member survived, and each family member eventually made it back to the village, in which case the village said, Tom, you are the great fearless one. Now here's the best part of the story. Tom later wrote about this title that was given to him in his journal saying this, it's easy to be fearless when you've been vaccinated against a disease. (laughs) Listen, my beloved, you're not called to be fearless in the Lord on your own strength. That's not what Zechariah is saying. You are called to serve the Lord without fear because you've been vaccinated too. Do you know that? You've been vaccinated By the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've been vaccinated against Satan, sin, and death. They no longer have any power over you in any capacity. That's how free you are if you've been united to Christ. The gospel's your vaccine, which means you're inoculated through and through. Which means what? You can worship God without fear. You can, in Christ, worship God today and every day until he calls you home or comes again in glory, worshiping him without fear. Without fear of man without fear of the repercussions of man, without the fear of losing your reputation or, or, or your job or your friends or your family or all those things that keep you. You can serve him without fear and you can serve him with all of who you are. That was the second implication of the coming of Christ. Look at verse 75 again. Without fear and number two, in holiness and righteousness before him all your days. Holiness means set apart. Righteousness means in a manner pleasing to the Lord. In other words, what Zechariah was saying here, that Christ comes to set us free that we might serve God without fear, with all of who we are. You say, well, you know what? I was struggling with the fear part, and now I'm really struggling because you're saying all of who I am, every word, every thought, my entire being, no part of my life apart from serving God. And I'd say, yes, that's what the scriptures teach. To love him how? With all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That is a condition of our true salvation. The picture here, I think, is is a bit daunting for us. How can we be a servant like that? It's not that we're without models, right? I mean, we, we see it all the time. You may have someone at work, maybe a good friend that's that friend that's all in. Over the years as I coached, there was always there was always that one guy on the team 
And, and oftentimes, he really wasn't even very good. But man, he was all in. I mean, he was there before the practices, after the practices. He was there in the film. He was on the field. He tried really hard. He was all in. He was giving it his heart, his soul, his strength into that. I have seen young married couples that put us older married couples to shame a bit, where they, they actually take their covenant vows very seriously, especially with, I, I've noticed this in the brides, maybe more so than the men, they enter, they, they, they have the wedding ceremony, and they enter into that marriage really wanting to be that Ephesians 5 wife, really wanting to be that helpmate and to love and to support and encourage. They're all in as the wife. So we know what this looks like, this full obedience. This is the expectation, my beloved, that Zechariah says, if you're a Christian, you ought to have for yourself and for one another. This is the expectation of being fully redeemed by Christ. That your whole life is completely committed to what? To loving, serving, and worshiping God. And you can do that because Christ did that perfectly for you. You see, I, I, I think that Zechariah, in this moment, he may not have understood it, but he was looking to the cross of Christ. He understood what this child in Mary's womb was going to do in some capacity to enable us to be all in. That Christ would ascend the cross with his body and have his body torn to pieces. That Christ would spend those three hours in darkness being tormented on your behalf, all in, that you might be redeemed by grace through faith. There was some idea by Zechariah that the sins that he bore, he bare for us. That the hell we deserved, he would endure for us. That Christ would what? He, he'd lose his name. He'd lose his reputation. He'd lose his people. He'd lose his city. He'd lose, he'd lose his father. That's why he cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He'd lose his father. He'd lose everything in order to what? To have you. Christ was all in. And because he was all in, he's calling us to be all in too. To love him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. This is the calling, verse 75, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days, we serve God. My beloved, if you're a Christian and you don't like serving God now and worshiping God now, eternity is going to be a real difficult thing for you because that's all we will do is serve and worship and adore God. So we, we're called to do that now. We're able to do that now because Christ has set us free to do that now. No Satan, no sin, no death, no power over you. You're free to serve God without fear with all of who you are. Now, again, I, I think that's sufficient for us to be, so that's, that's plenty of the meal. I'm full, Pastor. But there's another piece here which really aligns itself with the Christmas season. Zechariah calls us, says that Christ came to save us from our enemies. Christ came to enable us, to equip us to serve God without fear and holistically. And there's one more. He came to show us a way that we would not know unless he came. Point number three, Christ came to show us the way home. Now, if if you're paying attention here, those first eight verses in Zechariah's song might sound a bit strange to you. He had been visited by Gabriel in the temple. He's told that his son is going to be born. His name's going to be John. It's going to be a supernatural birth because Elizabeth cannot give birth. She's too old and her womb is barren. He's silenced for over nine months, at least nine months, and his mouth is open. He's able to proclaim 
the glories of God. He didn't say a word about Gabriel. He doesn't say a word about his experience in the temple. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, and for eight verses, all he talks about is the Christ. He doesn't even talk about John, not his own son. He talks about Christ, Christ, and the work of Christ. And then even, he finally gets to verse 76, and, and he talks about his son, but then he immediately goes back to why his son is there, and that's the point to the Christ. In other words, Zechariah has a right orientation about these two men. Oh, I, he loved his boy, and he was, he was probably really excited that God had chosen John to be the forerunner to Christ, but he knew the greater one. Look at verse 76. This is Zechariah speaking about John. And you, child, you will be called the prophet of the Most High. In fact, he's going to be the last prophet of the Old Testament. The last one to speak before the great prophet comes. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his way. Now, the last book in the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, tells us there's going to be a forerunner. Someone in the spirit of Elijah, the power of Elijah is going to come and talk about the Christ being here. And of course, as we saw two weeks ago, that was John's commission before he was ever born. We would say that was John's commission hundreds of years before he was ever conceived in Elizabeth's womb. He was going to come, and he was going to announce what? That the Christ was here. Not coming, but here. Literally just a few months behind his own conception. He was going to announce that Christ was here and something else. Look at verse 77. He was going to come to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. So not only was John commissioned to tell people that the Christ has come, that he's here on earth, but he was to tell people how they were to be saved by this Christ. Right? It's, it's an amazing thing that God would send his son as the Savior, as the Messiah, into the world. But that's not sufficient. Right? What's sufficient is when people actually believe in the Savior and are saved by this Savior. And so John, he goes out, as you know, in the early ministries we have in the gospel accounts, and he's calling people to what? He's saying repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent of your sins. The Christ is here. And he was preparing their hearts to hear the gospel and be saved by faith. That's what's so amazing about his testimony. He wasn't preaching faith in Christ. He was preaching repentance for the preparation of the heart to hear the gospel by Jesus and then be saved, that they might trust in him. Look at verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God. So this is Zechariah describing the ministry of John the Baptist and the work that he would do God would do through Christ because of the tender mercy of God. That's from the, it's another way of saying from the depths of God's mercy, the deepest part of eternal mercy, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now, we, you probably have heard that. Well, if you've been in the church a long time, you've heard that almost every year during the Christmas season. Right? This is very famous saying. It's drawing from Isaiah chapter 9 where it's talking about Christ coming and bringing the light into the world. Uh, Matthew actually, Matthew does a better job of, of bringing this prophetic understanding of the light of Christ into the darkness of the world. This is what Matthew writes, Matthew chapter four, speaking of the same thing. Luke's is a little more enigmatic, I think. Matthew says this, super clear. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, that's Christ, for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. A light 
has dawned. And so the picture that Zechariah is painting is one they were expecting. And, and, and we know it on this side of the cross even better that mankind, ever since the fall, we have been sitting, I love that, sitting in darkness. Right? As sin came in through Adam and Eve and permeated God's good creation, sin, evil, darkness, that daily shadow of eternal damnation, which is cast upon the world. And there's something about this time of year that magnifies the darkness. And I understand it, right? The more we bring light and talk about the light of Christ, the more we see that darkness and how dark it truly is. And it's even hard, at least, I think it should be hard for us, my beloved, to move throughout our lives and see how afflicted people are. This morning, um, Brandon had to encounter um, a gentleman who was sleeping on our, um, the entrance to the church. And he was homeless. And, and as Brandon tried to engage him and help him, he became violent and, and abusive with his language. And, and, he, and he left, thankfully, without police involvement. But Brandon's response to me was, I, it's just the brokenness is so hard It's so hard to see someone made in the image of God so broken that that's where they are. And yet, my beloved, we know it's not just someone like that. We know that apart from Christ, every single person that you know in your life that does not have the light of Christ is sitting in the darkness. They are are afflicted in ways that should cause our hearts to rightly break. The language here is one of a great light coming in to a world that is steeped in darkness. Proverbs 4.19 says this, the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. The darkness is so dark, my beloved, that those without the light of Christ are stumbling through it and they don't even know why they're stumbling. Oh, there should be compassion on our hearts. If there's not, then, then the light is dim in your own life. The only way Back to God. The only way that that we have light to see the path back to God is by God sending the light. If not for Christ, we would only know darkness. There's a cave, maybe some of you know this, there's a cave in the Santa Cruz Mountains called, (laughs) you'll love this, Hell Hole Cave, right? Yeah, it's a great, let's go down Hell Hole Cave. I want you to imagine for a minute that you and your friend, and let's say that you have some experience doing this, you decide that you're going to, on a glorious Friday morning or afternoon, you're going to venture down Hellhole Cave. And so you ascend the first 90 feet, which is really, really steep and a bit treacherous. You make your way down into pitch darkness. And you're roaming around down there about 45 minutes or an hour, and suddenly both your flashlights start to go dim. And you think, hmm, this is not good. And you ask each other, do you have a spare? No, I don't have a spare. And you realize you're about an hour in and you've got a few minutes left with your light. So both of you immediately start to scramble back up the path to get to the top, to get to the light. But 10 minutes later, both flashlights are out and you are in pitch darkness and you cannot move. And you know that you're not gonna get out unless someone comes. So minutes turn to hours, hours turn to a few days. You're desperate, you're cold, you're afraid, rightly so. And then on the third day, you see a little flicker of light. 
Now, you want it to be light. In fact, you, your, your mind has been playing tricks on you now for several days because you're in pitch darkness and you're beginning to imagine things. And you see this flicker of light, you think maybe someone's coming. And then the flicker of light gets a little brighter and a little brighter until you can fully see that it is light and there's a person there and it's the park ranger who got word that some two people, not so bright, went down into Hellhole Cave and it was reported and he said, I've been looking for you now for the past three days. And you rejoice because what? You're saved. You have this man now leading you with his light out of the cave, out of Hellhole Cave. When Adam and Eve fell, all mankind was plunged into the darkness, into hellhole creation. All of us plunged into it. No way back and no way to even see the path back. That's how dark the darkness is. For centuries, my beloved, mankind, we've tried desperately to overcome the darkness. We know it's there. We all know it's there. And so we try with social movements, we try with political revolutions, we try with self-indulgence, and for millennia we've tried, and yet mankind remains equally mean, equally selfish, and equally glory-starved. Some would say even worse today than we used to be, and maybe so. We embrace all these false lights thinking somehow we can transcend this darkness, we can get out of this mess. The sexual revolution, which was the light of the 60s, a false light of the 60s left our homes in shambles, our bodies diseased, and our unborn murdered in our mother's wombs. False light. The anti-authority revolution, which was the light of the 70s, has created an entire generation or two of skeptics who believe that all authority, good or bad, is bad because there's authority attached to it. The technological revolution, which really started to move in the 80s and has gone with breakneck speed to this very day has enslaved at least two generations. More isolated, more distracted, more lonely, and more influenced by the opinions of others because of the technological revolution that you know too well. I would say today in the West, one of the one of the greatest false lights is, is success. I'm not talking about million dollar, billion dollar. I'm just talking about middle class success. Going to school, getting a job, raising a family, having a retirement. All those are all, those are all good things, by the way. But if that's where you put your hope, if that's your light out of the darkness, then you're as deceived as they were in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. It is a false light. And I think one of the reasons, my beloved, that so many around us have difficulties even talking about the light of Christ or the need for salvation is because they feel secure in themselves. Right? I mean, if you're successful in this life, why, why do you need to be saved? What do you need to be saved from? You don't see the darkness that is on you. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. He came in the flesh as the light of the world to do what? To show us the way back to God. It says to show us to make the way of peace in, in, in the Hebrew, that's shalom, you know this. That's, that's all of life. That's peace with God. That's peace with man. That's peace in your heart. 
oh, I think we need it there sometimes more than any other. We're so anxious, so disturbed, and yet this Christ came to give us peace. My friends, like the cave example, we're stuck apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're stuck. We're sitting. We're sitting in sin with no way out. We don't know, should I go left or should I go right until Christ comes through the cross. This is what he did, through the cross. He ascended the cross, and for three hours, he embraced eternal darkness. For three hours on that cross, he received the total wrath that you and I deserved for our sins so that he could bring you out of the darkness and into the light. For three days, his beautiful body, his broken body, lay in that tomb in total darkness so that on the third day, what? You know it. He could rise again in fulfillment of the scriptures and bring light to man who sits in the darkness. To all who repent and believe, we can put our trust and our faith in Christ who is the light and we can have that light too. Without Christ, there's only darkness. But by his coming, by his dying, by his rising from the dead, by the sunrise visiting mankind. That is such a beautiful imagery, right? We're in darkness, and then Christ comes, and the sun rises upon fallen earth. And now for 2,000 years, that sun, that brilliant Christ and the gospel, has called you out of the darkness. And what a great testimony we want to call others to this time of year, to bring them out of the darkness to light has come to all who repent and believe, who all who put their faith to be saved by grace. Christ came, my beloved, not just to show you the path with his light, but to put you on it. To literally pick you up like that beautiful park ranger who saved those foolish peeps. Take you off the broad path, which is only death, and put you on the narrow path, which leads to eternal life. If you don't know Christ, and don't assume that you know Christ merely because you've been baptized and you have joined a church, if you don't know Christ, this Christmas season, if you find yourself stuck in the darkness and you don't know the way out, then see the light of Christ. See the light that Christ has shine, shown on us by his coming calling you to him, say, repent of your sins, seek forgiveness of your sins. Christ says, I will forgive you. Come into fellowship with me. Know eternal life through me. Simply trusting with that childlike faith that God through Christ can in fact save you and set you free. This season is a great season for that. As you drive around and you see all the light, think, why so much light during Christmas? Why do you think so much light during Christmas? That's not a difficult connection to make. Because the light came in through Christ at his birth. If you do know Christ or you claim Christ, then you need to know, and I'll close on this, there is no mixture with darkness and light. Last night, as I was getting ready to go to bed, my wife burns these beautiful smelling candles and I don't know what they're called. It's a glass jar. I had two little wicks and, and, I, and I took the, the cap and I put it on top. It was the last thing in the kitchen. And, and I put that thing on and it went really dark. I'm like, oh great, now I'm going to hit my head in the wall trying to get out of here. As soon as I put that cap on, the light was gone. They didn't mix. 
before there was light in the kitchen. 1 John chapter 1, listen with all your might. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. If you claim Christ this Christmas season and you continue to walk in the darkness, you continue to live in sin, John and I would say the entire sacred scriptures make it very, very clear you are lying to yourself. If you're a child of God, saved by Christ, you will walk in the light. Doesn't mean you won't stumble. You will, but you'll get up, you'll seek forgiveness, and you'll walk in righteousness. That good, huh? Was it that good? That good. Okay. Following Jesus means living for Jesus according to his teachings, according to his commands. If you've been united with Christ, you're a free person. You're a free man, a free woman in the kingdom of God. That means you're able to serve God without fear, with all of who you are. 1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Listen to this. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That's your path. path you want to be on this Christmas season. That's the path you want all those in your mission field to be on too. Tell them about Christ, will you? Thanks for listening. Christ Community Church is a Reformed Baptist church in San Jose, California. If you'd like more information on our church, please visit lovinglord.org. From there, you can find service times, weekly gatherings, our sermon archive, and other resources. For video content, please visit our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you again for listening.